0: History is the most important subject that you can study and if you can't see what's happening in the past you can't look nearly as far in the future okay, yes, we've had a here. Yesterday December 7th 1941 a date which will live in infamy This This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. It's a strange fact that we still don't know what light really is. We know its properties, but just because we know how to measure something doesn't mean we actually know what it really is. And it's strange to me that something so fundamental to our lives is such a puzzle to us. It's obvious. We need light to live. And also, without light, there's no way for us to acquire any knowledge. To see anything, we need light. Think about it. An electromagnetic wave hits the surface of a thing and gets reflected back into our eye, and that wave carries information about that object to our brain, which we then use to create an image. But that's the same way with all our senses, too. Ultimately, it turns into some kind of wave. All the information that comes to our brains involves some kind of light wave. So without it, we can't know anything. I could go on and on about the importance of light. And it is something our ancestors thought a lot about. You see, the sun is important in many, if not all the pagan religions and was worshiped in my last series, I talked about how even Catholicism was able to spread so quickly and easily by incorporating some pagan beliefs about sun worship. <laughs> even the fact that the uh, Catholic Roman Emperor Constantine, well, we never know for sure if he ever stopped worshiping the sun. What's more pertinent to our series, though, is how light is used in all sorts of metaphors related to knowledge and ideas. We see this even in our own history here in America. Light is used as a metaphor for an example of good to the world. And the early British colonists of America were heavy users of this metaphor. They believed they were setting up a new government and settlement that would shine like a beacon to the rest of the world. In 1630, John Winthrop led four ships filled with 700 Puritan migrants to New England. And he outlined in a sermon on the way how their Massachusetts Bay colony would be different and shine like an example to the rest of the world, he wrapped his sermon up. For we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. End quote. To Winthrop, New England would be an ideal spiritual and secular community, and that example that they would set there would help save the old world. And this isn't the sentiment of just one leader here. It was what many of these settlers believed. And what Winthrop wrote in that sermon was a long-lasting source of inspiration for those settlers and their descendants all the way to the founders of America. Paul Johnson, in his A History of the American People, wrote this, quote, These early diaries and letters, which are plentiful and the fact that most important documents about the early American colonies have been preserved, mean that the United States is the first nation in human history whose most distant origins are fully recorded. For America, we have no ancient national myth or prescriptive legends, but solid facts, set down in the matter-of-fact writing of the time. We know in considerable detail what happened and why it happened, and through letters and diaries, we are taken right inside the minds of the men and women who made it happen. There can be no doubt then why they went to America. Among the leading spirits, those venturing out not in the hope of quick profit, but to create something new, valuable and durable, the overwhelming thrust was religious. End quote. We won't talk much about America in this series, but I bring it up because it's a useful example of using light as a metaphor for the idea or the principle behind an entire nation's founding, in this case, an idea of what America would stand for liberty built on a biblical foundation, especially in new England. There was a purpose for what they were doing and they lived and breathed this idea so much. So they were willing to sacrifice everything for it. They knew the world needed this light and without it, then the world would be dark. As profound as it is to consider light and what it is, it's terrifying to think about complete darkness. Have you ever been in a room that's completely dark? So dark that not only can you not see yourself, but you lose all bearing of where you are. It's not like walking out at night where you have the stars and moon still giving light, but complete darkness, well, that's something else. And that is how I want to frame this next series like the founding of america this series is about the principle and a purpose of a nation a nation explicitly founded on biblical principles and it is about a battle between light and dark this history that i'm going to cover asks of us an important question in a battle of light and dark how far will you go to keep the light on you see popular media and even classrooms today, they tend to shy away from this kind of question. They like to tell their stories in shades of grey now. That's because light and dark is really a matter of judgement, isn't it? The colonists of America judged their way better. If you look at other time periods of history, like the Dark Ages and the Age of Enlightenment, the term Dark Ages has fallen out of favor by scholars because it passes judgment. In this time of moral and cultural relativism, it's not only unscholarly, but it's bigoted and racist to say one culture was better than the other. It's all shades now. So even talking about light and dark could get people angry. But it is kind of interesting to me that no one has a problem with the term Age of Enlightenment. You see, that is a judgment, isn't it? That implies the previous eras were dark. But no one seems to have a problem with that. I think they leave that label alone because in that age, the rejection of the divine and spiritual became the fundamental belief of education. The Bible was criticized and relegated to fiction. But this podcast does use the Bible as a history source, so that is strike two for me. But what I find interesting about the Age of Enlightenment is that it brought physical advancement but spiritual decay. And if that's the case, then you could make a case, couldn't you, in a certain way, that this age was actually dark. So in the end, you have scholars unwilling to label a certain period of backwardness as dark, but then call a different period light. Which way is it? Well, that all depends on how you judge, doesn't it? This series starts in a time period where historians generally agree was a better time period. It's the Hellenistic period. Introduced when Alexander conquered the Persian Empire in 331 BCE, this period was created when Alexander attempted to create a different kind of empire. He wasn't trying to destroy and stamp out the old empire. He wanted to combine both the Persian and the Greek cultures into one. This was demonstrated when in 324... BCE, he forced more than 10,000 officers to marry Persian noblewomen. He led the way, marrying daughters of two different former Persian emperors. But he wanted to do this to unify the two cultures into one. And he even had goals to spread it down from the leadership class to homogenize the entire population. Now his successors didn't continue that policy and pretty much all of them divorced their Persian wives after Alexander died. But what did happen is what historians term as Hellenism, the export of Greek culture throughout the old Persian Empire. Its language and culture spread to wherever Alexander conquered, and the old Persian satraps and territories got Greek rulers for the next several centuries. Now, the thing about Hellenism, though, is that it really only affected the leadership of these places. There were new cities that were modeled after the Greek cities. Some became big and important, like Alexandria or Antioch. But outside the elite and the tiny minority at the top, the culture was still largely local. The masses in the Persian Empire worshipped the same gods and spoke their own languages as their fathers did. And in fact, when you think about it, if you look at history, you realize that actually the Greek culture was more influenced by the East. And you can see this by the pagan cults that propped up in Greece and in later Rome, which I talked about to some degree in the previous series. We can say that Eastern religion overcame Western philosophy. Of course, it was a mixture, but people need something to worship, and philosophy, well, that's not going to cut it. At the end of Alexander's life, he was adopting Persian ways, and his Greek followers were afraid that he was basically going native, too far Persian. Now, the history books I read in schools, when they talk about Hellenism and the spread of ideas, they focus more on how Western ideas spread east and how that was a positive development hellenism was bringing progress and materially they do have a point trade opened up cities were built great architecture art and other cultural achievements were happening in those areas at this time but as usual it comes with a price for the next hundred years alexander's generals and their sons would fight for pieces of that large empire it was war after war after more war and everything that comes with war, agonizing death, disease, famine, pillage, rape, and captivity. And so those historians leave out in that interpretation that before the Greeks came, the Persian empire wasn't a terrible place to live in. You could keep your religion, your customs, and as long as you paid your taxes, you were left alone for the most part. And, of course, there wasn't all that war. The Jews would know this best of all. It was during the Persian rule that they were able to rebuild their temple in 515 BCE. The last verse in the Old Testament, as organized by the Jews, states this, quote, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth has the Lord God of heaven given me. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord, his God be with him and let him go up. End quote. It was under Persian rule that the Jews were allowed to rebuild their temple and restore their way of life. The biblical way of life. And even the temple being rebuilt, it wasn't the rebuilding of some important building without much meaning like maybe our modern minds might interpret it as we have to realize how important the temple was to the Jews this was a symbol of them rebuilding their way of life defined by God's law centered around that temple what happened there sacrifices and music and all the various things that went in that temple On the inside of the temple, there was an incense altar, and there was a lampstand that had to be kept burning. So this did, or should have, meant everything to the Jews. They even received help from the Persians later. Ezra, the Jewish scribe, records that Cyrus gave the Jews gold and silver temple vessels, the ones that the Babylonians had stole, and Cyrus gave them some building supplies and sacrifices for burnt offerings. So when you look at it, it was a pretty good empire to be under, don't you think? If you were to line up all the empires and the kingdoms that existed at that time, it'd be hard to find something better. And it wasn't just the Jews that were left alone either. This was a policy of administration for the Persians, trying to keep that vast empire together. So that's what the historians leave out today when they talk about all the good ideas coming from Hellenism. Well, there were some pretty good ones in Persia at the time. So for the Jews, this was a very interesting time period, this transition between the empires. While Alexander was conquering the Persians, the Jews would have been wary. Will Alexander, if he is successful, continue the policy of tolerance or not? And even the transition was very interesting. You see, the Greeks were vastly outnumbered. The Persian army was being led by their king. In various points, so it looked like the whole might of the Persian Empire was going to repel the Greeks and push them back. The Persians, after all, were the superpower, and they did meet in battle several times. The second time was in 333 BCE at Issus, which is where the Mediterranean ends on the eastern side, of the bottom of what we call Asia Minor today, close to where Turkey and Syria meet. In that battle, if Alexander wins, basically the entire Persian Empire would be opened up for him to conquer. And when they do meet, the Persians get crushed. Alexander just blows them away. He even captures the emperor's family. I don't know why, but Darius brought them along. And Darius fled. So it's not looking good for the Persian Empire. But remember, the Greeks are outnumbered the emperor is still alive and there's still a chance that he can repel the Greeks. Normally at this point, you'd expect Alexander to chase down Darius into the heart of the Persian empire and just completely eliminate that threat. But instead he decides to secure the important coastal cities in the Levant. These cities were important trade centers and had much wealth. And it was also important to his strategy because it was through the Mediterranean that his army could be supplied and reinforced so he marches his army down the coast and he's taking city after city now most of them submit voluntarily to alexander they take him on as their new emperor and this is what changes the situation pretty dramatically for the jews you see they have to figure out how to navigate this shifting political and military landscape if they show favor to alexander but darius makes a comeback well then they could be punished but Alexander is coming down their way with a big army. It's the immediate threat. And who is to say if Darius can make a comeback? So whose side should they pick? The Greeks or the Persians? Well, they're about to have a little more time to decide because Alexander's advance is halted when one of the biggest and most important cities along this coast, Tyre, resists. Tyre is a Phoenician city, and the Phoenicians have built a very important trade network all around the Mediterranean. And this was one of their major cities, that, in Carthage, which was over in North Africa. Tyre was confident it could resist because it had superior numbers in their navy, and their city was basically an island fortress off the coast, so it was well defended. One historian mentions how their walls were 150 feet high but Alexander couldn't leave it alone because if he did, then his supply lines would be threatened at any time. Not to mention the Phoenicians had thrown some pretty big insults to Alexander. So he was emotionally stirred up as well. And so he goes through a lot of trouble to take the city. He starts in 332 and builds a causeway from the coast to the island city. But as that's built and gets closer to the city, they run into problems. First, It gets too deep for them to engineer it. And on top of that, as they got closer to the city, the Phoenicians would send arrows and other projectiles to kill their engineers. So Alexander has to stop. Then he builds two huge siege towers. And at the top of these towers, he puts his own projectile weapons there. It's built out of wood, which I think you can immediately think about all the dangers that poses. But they do cover it and hide to make it harder to burn. The Tyrians send a ship full of burning oil, though, and of course they burn it down. So Alexander has to wait until he gets naval reinforcements. And this was the turning point for Tyre because as long as they had naval superiority, they could hold out. But the Phoenicians didn't really send aid to them while Alexander was continuing to receive more ships and more troops from nearby cities and from Greece. And so when he gets superiority, he starts to assault the city again. During this long siege, Alexander goes around the area taking submission from other cities that are more inland and tries to recruit more troops for his army. These cities are all facing the same decision. Do we side with Persia or do we side with Greece? Alexander or Darius? It's one of the questions that plagues people all throughout history whether it's generals lords nobles all the way to city states and even smaller nations whenever there's a power struggle between the former heavyweight and an upstart you have to determine who are you going to side with but choose wisely because it could lead to greater wealth if you pick correctly but if you're wrong well you're going to die the fortunes of many people were made or broken over the answer to this question. And one of those cities in that plight at that moment in history was Jerusalem. Josephus wrote that Alexander sent a letter to the Jewish high priest at the time, a man named Jadua. Now, Josephus is a Jewish historian born in Jerusalem to a noble family, but later he became a Roman citizen and wrote a history of the Jews for the Roman and Greek audiences around 93 CE. So he draws from sources available at that time that weren't too far removed from the events that we're about to cover. So he's a reliable source. Josephus wrote, quote, so Alexander came into Syria and took Damascus, and when he had obtained Sidon, he besieged Tyre. when he had sent an epistle to the Jewish high priest to send him some auxiliaries and to supply his army with provisions, and that what presents he formerly sent to Darius he would now send to him and choose the friendship of the Macedonians, and that he should never repent of so doing. Quote. So the Jews have a problem: who do they side with? Darius is still alive, and the empire can field another massive army. But Alexander is right there, practically on their border. And he's offering them the same deal the Persians offered to the Jews. Paid tribute. Send some supplies and men and everything will be like it was before. What an interesting decision to make. So what did the Jews decide to do? Josephus wrote, quote, but the high priest answered the messengers that he had given his oath to Darius not to bear arms against him. And he said that he would not transgress this while Darius was in the land of the living, quote. The Jews chose loyalty. What a brave and noble response, isn't it? How many city states, nations or people would stay true to their original promise in the face of a fatal threat? And understandably so, this upsets Alexander. Josephus writes, quote, Upon hearing this answer, Alexander was very angry. And though he determined not to leave Tyre, which was just ready to be taken, yet as soon as he had taken it, he threatened that he would make an expedition against the Jewish high priest and through him teach all men to whom they must keep their oaths, quote. So Alexander was furious. And now the Jews were really facing a threat of violence. But it's worse than that. There was a political situation going around them that made them look even worse to Alexander. There was a Persian governor over the area named Sanballat. He was a Cuthain, one of the peoples from Persian media that were brought in by the Assyrians when they conquered the northern tribes of Israel and took them into captivity and then repopulated the area with these guys. Now Sanballat is governing Samaria and he knows how important Jerusalem is to the area. So, to keep Jews friendly to him before this had happened, he came up with a plan. He married his daughter to the brother of the high priest, a Jew named Manasseh. Now, this marriage upset many of the Jews. Understandably, it was against God's law to do this. And just 125 years earlier, when Ezra and Nehemiah were living, they were strictly enforcing it. Marriage to foreigners was one of the main reasons why they had departed from God's law and were... Put into captivity for. And back in that time, they were very eager to learn the lesson and not repeat the same mistake. But by this time, about 125 years later, sadly, there were some Jews there that no longer feared breaking this law. What made it horrible was that it was from a member of the ruling family. You could say that at this point in time, the light in Jerusalem wasn't shining as bright as it should have been. But enough of the Jews were obeying the law under Jaddua's leadership, so they drove Manasseh away. So Manasseh goes to Sanballat and he says, Look, I can't stay married to her because I'm part of this prestigious line in Jerusalem. And in order to stay a part of that ruling line, I can't be married to a foreigner. The Jewish rulers were picked from the family of the high priest. And it wasn't always like a father to son inheritance. The brothers could also be selected to become the high priest. And you needed a certain amount of agreement from the population, too. So Sandball responds by saying, look, stay married to my daughter. I will build you a temple in Samaria, in Mount Gerizim, the highest mountain in Samaria. And then he'll still be part of a ruling class of people. Sandball has a plan to enact this, and he's going to take advantage of the chaos that Alexander is causing to make it happen. When Alexander was laying siege to Tyre, Sanballat, unlike the Jews, submits to Alexander. Josephus wrote, quote, But Sanballat thought he had now gotten a proper opportunity to make his attempt. So he renounced Darius, and taking with him 7,000 of his own subjects, he came to Alexander. And finding him beginning the siege of Tyre, he said to him that he delivered up to him these men who came out of places under his dominion and did gladly accept of him for his lord instead of Darius. So when Alexander had received him kindly, Sanballat thereupon took courage and spake to him about his present affair. He told him that he had a son-in-law, Manasseh, who was brother to the high priest Jadua, and that there were many others of his own nation now with him that were desirous to have a temple in the places subject to him, that it would be for the king's advantage to have the strength of the Jews divided into two parts, lest when the nation is of one mind and united upon any attempt for innovation, it proved troublesome to kings, as it had formerly proved to the kings of Assyria whereupon Alexander gave Sanballat leave so to do, who used the utmost diligence and built the temple and made Manasseh the priest and deemed it a great reward that his daughter's children should have that dignity, End quote. So Sanballat executes his plan and in doing so, he makes the Jews look worse. And it doesn't help that Sanballat claims that there are those in Jerusalem that do want to submit. Not only on top of this military threat, Sanballat has now presented the Jews with a religious threat as well. You see there's a pagan temple built just north of there now, administered by a Jew from the family of the high priest. And so this is exactly the kind of temptation that can make the Jews transgress their law. Sambal is purposely attempting to divide the nation in two and is using religion and Alexander as a wedge. And there were other Jews like Manasseh who had married foreigners And so this was a real threat. Now, this was all brewing while Alexander was at Tyre. Finally, after seven months, he takes the city, he destroys it, slaughters the Phoenicians. And what's interesting about this is when he broke into the city, he was so upset with all the insults and all the time it took that he personally led the final assault, which is highly unusual for a general to do. It puts you at so much risk. It's pretty much crazy. The Greeks successfully breached the city and something like 6,000 of the Tyrians were killed when the Greeks took over and another 2,000 were crucified on the beach after it was all over. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. The Greeks saved it for when they were especially upset. And then after that, 30,000 of the Tyrians were sold into slavery. After this, Alexander marches down to the city of Gaza, which also refuses to submit, but he quickly besieges it and takes it over. And so now Alexander is finally ready to deal with Jerusalem. Alexander is looking at the perfect setup for a coup. You see, Alexander could either take his army down and completely wipe out the Jews with force, or he can threaten a coup and say, look, we can destroy your temple, kill your men, sell your women and children to slavery, just like we did with Tyre, or you just submit, take Manasseh as your high priest. After all, he's in the right family, in the right lineage, and we can make this all peaceful. This kind of deal happens all the time in history. It's perfect for the Jews who don't want to resist because they'd still have a leader in the right family, and they would avoid the bloodshed. And some of them were probably reasoning, surely God would be okay with this deal. We're protecting the temple after all. But Jadua is a strong leader for God. He wants to keep the light on, so to speak. If the Jews compromise on this, then, well, it's like turning the lights off. God's law and his way of life is compromised. It's gone. And it would become lost forever and then the jews would lose their identity on top of that that's how countless pagan religions and communities have disappeared in history now what i'm trying to show is that the temptation to make some kind of deal with alexander is strong here and if we're living at that time it might have been even tempting to us in my mind though i keep going back to the founders of america because It is a more recent example of a situation like this. The Americans here, they had an idea. They had a law that they wanted to defend and uphold. And they were willing to fight for it. They knew it was a light to the world. And so they were willing to sacrifice everything to keep their way of life going. They were willing to fight the British Empire. And what's remarkable about that situation is the British and the Americans weren't that far off. They were pretty similar. But I think it's a great comparison. So if you were Jadua, what would you do? Would you be tempted to make a deal? Would you be tempted to look to your own force of arms? How would you solve this problem, this fatal threat? Here's what Josephus records. Quote, now Alexander, when he had taken Gaza, made haste to go up to Jerusalem. And Jaddua, the high priest, when he had heard that, was in an agony and under terror, as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing disobedience. He therefore ordained that the people should make supplications and should join with him in offering sacrifice to God, whom he besought to protect that nation and to deliver them from the perils that were coming upon them. End quote. Jadua doesn't rally the troops. He doesn't try to make a deal or send tribute. He does what the righteous leaders of the Jews did in the past. He turns to God in prayer. He gets the whole city to pray to God, make sacrifices to God, and he looks to God for deliverance. In the end, he doesn't look to Darius for rescue. He doesn't look to Alexander for mercy. He looks to God. And God, well, he delivers. In a spectacular way, too, if you were thinking about the different ways God could intervene and answer those prayers, it's a sure bet that what you were thinking wasn't what God did. Here's what Josephus records, quote, Whereupon God warmed him in a dream, which came upon him after he had offered sacrifice, that he should take courage and adorn the city and open the gates, that the rest should appear in white garments, but that he and the priest should meet the king in the habits proper to their order, without the dread of any ill consequences which the providence of God would prevent, upon which... When he rose from his sleep, he greatly rejoiced and declared to all the warning he had received from God, according to which dream he had acted entirely and so waited for the coming of the king. End quote. What an unusual way to deliver the Jews. Jadua followed the instructions 100%. He had faith and now he is obeying. And what a sight that would have made too. Just think about that. Imagine what that would look like. The city opened wide with people dressed in white proceeding out of the gates. And they're led by the priests in their priestly garments. Now the priests would wear pure white linen and they would have a purple and red girdle around the waist with a bonnet or a round cap on their head. And in front of all of that was the high priest Jadua. And he had some elaborate garments, some beautiful garments. He would have also worn white linen, but over it would have been a blue robe that had scarlet, gold, and purple promagandots embroidered on the hem with bells of gold. Then there was the girdle and an outer garment like a mantle called the ephod that hung over the shoulders and was made of beautifully woven gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, and linen threads. It was ornamented with gemstones on the shoulder pieces on top, and over that was a breastplate with twelve Beautiful gems hung over the shoulders with gold chains. And these gems included diamond and emerald, sapphire and onyx, 12 total, one for each tribe of Israel. And then he had a miter of fine white linen on his head and attached to it, blue lace on the front where the high priest's forehead would be, was a plate of pure gold engraved with the words, holiness to the Lord. What a sight that would make. Picture that coming out of the city. Here were God's people filing out of Jerusalem to meet Alexander and his army. This is what God wanted done and what Jadawah did. So the question is, when Alexander sees this, what is going to happen? Now remember, Alexander was upset. He was still angry that the Jews didn't submit. He knew that there was some potential division he could play on. Like I said earlier, the neighboring cities had all submitted. Some of the leading men in those neighboring cities had actually joined up with him. And then they were taunting Alexander to destroy Jerusalem. They wanted the Jews to be gone as well. Alexander's army would have loved the chance to plunder the city. And if he could do it without a fight, how much better would that be? So what would you do if you're in Alexander's sandals? You're angry. Your men want to plunder. The locals are urging you to destroy the Jews. Everything is propelling Alexander to follow through with his earlier threats. Josephus records, quote, And when Jadua understood that he was not far from the city, he went out in procession with the priests and the multitude of the citizens. The procession was venerable, and the manner of it different from that of other nations. It reached to a place called Sappha, which name translated into Greek signifies a prospect for you have thence a prospect both of jerusalem and of the temple and when the phoenicians and the chaldeans that followed him thought they should have the liberty to plunder the city and torment the high priest to death which the king's displeasure fairly promised them the very reverse of it happened for alexander When he saw the multitude at a distance in white garments while the priests stood clothed with fine linen and the high priest in purple and scarlet clothing with his miter on his head, having the golden plate whereupon the name of God was engraved, he approached by himself and adored that name and first saluted the high priest. The Jews also did all together with one voice salute Alexander and encompass him about. Whereupon the kings of Syria and the rest were surprised at what Alexander had done and supposed him disordered in his mind, End quote. What Alexander did was totally unexpected. You see, he had never seen anything like this before. He sees the Jews in white, the priests and the high priest in their magnificent royal colors coming out, and he approaches them alone. And then all the Jews shout a greeting to Alexander, most likely thousands of them, what a sight, what a sound. He had seen cities submit before, but never like this, never in this fashion. And his men, no doubt surprised by the procession, were even more surprised that Alexander softened. They were expecting, hoping, wanting Alexander to destroy these people, but now Alexander is totally taken in. One of his closest friends and advisors asks Alexander, why aren't you doing the things you promised to do when they've refused to submit to you over half a year ago? Josephus records how God orchestrated Alexander's response. And remember what Josephus said earlier, that his own troops think he's crazy for not following through on the promise. The gates were wide open, the people there for the slaughter. Here's what Josephus records, quote. However, Parmenio alone went up to him and asked him how it came to pass that when all others adored him, he should adore the high priest of the Jews. To whom he replied, quote, I did not adore him, but God, who has honored him with his high priesthood. For I saw this very person in a dream, in this very habit, when I was at Dios in Macedonia, who, when I was considering with myself how I might obtain the dominion of Asia, exhorted me to make no delay but boldly to pass over the sea there for that he would conduct my army and would give me the dominion over the Persians. Whence it is that having seen no other in that habit and now seeing this person in it and remembering that vision and the exhortation that I had in my dream, I believe that I bring this army under the divine conduct and shall therewith conquer Darius and destroy the power of the Persians and that all things will succeed according to what is in my own mind. And when he had said this to Parmenio, and had given the high priest his right hand, the priests ran along by him, and he came into the city. And when he went up into the temple, he offered sacrifice to God, according to the high priest's direction, and magnificently treated both the high priest and the priests. And when the book of Daniel was showed him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. End quote. God had prepared this for years before Alexander had even set foot in the Persian Empire. It's amazing and mind-boggling how it all worked out. It was a total victory for the Jews. Because they trusted in God, God spared them and delivered them completely. They were to receive... The same treatment the Persians gave them before. It was as if nothing would change. Josephus wrote, quote, And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. But the next day he called them to him and bid them ask what favors they pleased of him. Whereupon the high priest desired that they might enjoy the laws of their forefathers and might pay no tribute on the seventh year. He granted all they desired, and when they entreated him that he would permit the Jews in Babylon and Media to enjoy their own laws also, he willingly promised to do hereafter what they desired. And when he said to the multitude that if any of them would enlist themselves in his army on this condition, that they should continue under the laws of their forefathers and live according to them, he was willing to take them with him. Many were ready to accompany him with his wars." End quote. So not only did Alexander show mercy, he showed the Jews respect. They wouldn't even have to pay tribute on the years that they had the land Sabbath. And I think it's pretty interesting that in return, some Jews even went and fought with him. How remarkable is this? This is the kind of history I would have loved to hear in my world history classes in public schools, but I didn't get that and you probably didn't either. And the reason is pretty simple. They don't believe what josephus records here you see the book jadua showed alexander was the book of daniel and in that book god gives the prophet daniel visions of the future some of these visions give a broad summary of western civilization from the time of the babylon empire down to well past the roman empire i call it history but for daniel and for the jews at this time it was prophecy There's the image of the statue in the second chapter. This vision shows the different empires in Western civilization. They're all represented by different parts of the statue of various qualities of metal. So there's the head of gold, which is Babylon, Persia, the silver arms and chest, Greece, the bronze midsection. In the seventh chapter of Daniel, the empires are represented by beasts, each with particular details brought out for specific reasons. So in this vision, Babylon is a lion with eagle's wings, Persia, is a bear with three ribs in its jaws and greece is a leopard with four wings out of its back and four heads daniel records yet another vision with these empires but this one is on persia and greece he's in the persian royal palace and in the next chapter daniel's vision begins by showing that the persian empire is a ram with two horns here's what daniel wrote quote Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with collar against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. That's the one. That's the one that if I were Jadua in that situation, I would have told Alexander. It's so dramatic and memorable. The Greco-Macedonian Empire here is represented by the goat, and Alexander is that notable horn. But it could have also been a prophecy found in the 11th chapter of Daniel. Here's what Daniel prophesies, Quote, And now will I show you the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength through the riches he shall stir up against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, Now, I don't think I would have shared that last part if I was the high priest since it talks about Alexander dying. But still, how awesome would it be if you're Alexander to have had this dream, this vision of the high priest, then this great procession out of the city with people dressed in white and in the priestly garments, and then be told God prophesied of your rise and you will be successful. Well, I think even if I was upset about the people not submitting, that I would change my mind. And that's what happened. The Jews were spared. And it's incredible to see all this play out. Prophecy being fulfilled at that moment which is now ancient history for us today. Why doesn't this get taught? Clearly, clearly something supernatural is at work here for there to be a prophecy, for there to be these visions, and for it to all be fulfilled. And then for even the high priest to show Alexander it being fulfilled in real time. There is no other explanation. Well, it's so accurate that those that reject God and his revelation dismiss the book of Daniel completely. And so they'll claim that Daniel wasn't written in the 6th century BCE, like the book says, but instead was written by the Jews in the 2nd century BCE. Many don't even think Daniel existed, but that it's just some kind of compilation of editors who finished their work around 168 to 164. But this argument runs into some serious problems. It's not true. There's archaeological proof in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a collection of parchment squirrels and fragments of squirrels stored and hidden in caves, the first of which was discovered in 1946 or 1947 by a Bedouin. Now, found in those scrolls were the oldest copies of biblical books ever discovered. There are over 200 different biblical manuscripts identified among those scrolls. Some dated back to the 3rd century and even into the 4th century BCE. And according to one scholar here, Herschel Shanks, one fragment of Daniel is even dated back to the late 2nd century BCE. One of the most remarkable parts of the discovery here is that when they looked at the scriptures in those scrolls, they're very similar to the scriptures we have today in our modern copies. It turns out that our bible is amazingly accurate now back to daniel specifically we have a fragment that dates to the late second century bce or somewhere between 150 to 100 this is at most barely 50 years after the events that we're going to cover in this series so those that claim that daniel isn't prophecy but rather just history they want us to believe that that book was finished in the 160s But that would be less than 50 years after it became canonical in a time of extreme stress, and that just doesn't happen. I'll include an article in the show notes about this, but when you understand the process, you see there's just not enough time for this to work out. The Dead Sea Scrolls prove Daniel wrote his book long before the events it prophesied happened. There just wasn't enough time otherwise. And it's worth bringing all of this up for this history because in the next episode, we're going to cover more prophecies of Daniel. And I just wanted to get this out in the open. Look, it's clear Jadua acted out of faith, a faith built on the knowledge of the prophecies found in Daniel. And as Josephus records, yes, he was agonizing over it. But just because he knew what would happen in broad strokes doesn't mean he knew how the specifics would work. And I think it's important to remember that human element. He had to build faith, and in the end, it worked out. In the study of history, you'll come across great men. Men who shaped our civilization. Men like Winston Churchill, who alone and ostracized stood up for Western democracies, stood against Adolf Hitler, and by doing so, saved Western civilization. And we know a lot about Winston Churchill thanks to how easy it is today for us to write and record history. And, of course, Churchill wrote a lot of it himself. Jadua, by turning to God, he saved Jerusalem. He saved God's way of life from Alexander and spiteful neighbors. We may only know of him because of Josephus, but his actions shaped history. Think about it. Think about your own civilization today and how it's impossible to separate the Judaic-Christian roots of it, the leaders, like Jadua, are responsible for the way our civilization operates today. The Jews survived a turbulent takeover and were able to carry on as before, but now a more hazardous time is to come when Alexander dies. When Alexander finally finished conquering the Persians, he sat on top of the world. But it wasn't too long before he was dead, just like Daniel's prophecy said. He had just returned from attempting a conquest in India where his army, after 11 long years of warfare, mutinied and forced him to come back. And when he came back, he wasn't too long before he died, June 323 BCE. Now, no one knows exactly how or why alexander died but it was after he had downed a lot of wine so it's hard to know if he got sick from drinking too much too fast or if his health was already bad from drinking too much all the time or if he was poisoned. some historians discount poisoning but there are a few greek leaders that were envious of alexander and many would have wanted to kill him before maybe he killed them alexander had already put down some plots and assassination attempts and killed those involved it's hard to get to the top, though, without making some enemies. I like how Josephus puts it, and since we relied on him so much, I'll use him as a source. It's a one-liner, but it stands out. Josephus wrote quote: "Now when Alexander, king of Macedon, had put an end to the dominion of the Persians and had settled the affairs in Judea after the aforementioned manner, he ended his life." End quote: He ended his life." So at the time, you can see the poison theory wasn't in vogue. Now, it makes me think perhaps Jadua did tell Alexander how his empire would fall, and maybe that made him fatalistic. The empire Alexander created, though, was about to go through many changes and a whole lot of violence. It's hard to see how it was avoidable, especially since when Alexander died, he didn't have an heir to maintain it. His only legitimate son was still unborn. He had an illegitimate son, and his half-brother was mentally insane to a certain degree. But even if Alexander had an heir, the Greeks were so independent that I'd imagine there would still be a whole lot of war to keep the empire together. And at that time, in ancient days, with ancient technology and communication methods, it's much easier to see and more tempting to rebel than to submit to a capital that's 2,000 miles away. When he died, his top generals immediately began to partition the empire. Under the name of an unborn heir, the generals were given essentially governor roles in different satraps or territories in Alexander's empire. Now, they had the power of a king and acted like kings, but they weren't called kings because they were representing an heir. The generals, though, would pick which heir they thought should reign and should succeed the throne so they would purposely risk breaking the empire because it would be more beneficial to get your figurehead on the throne and secure your power as a general it was a turbulent time and it would lead to an explosion of culture transfer like we talked about but it also came with a whole lot of war and tragedy this would present new challenges to the Jews that they would have to deal with but for now The light stayed on. Today's show is the first on a series about Antiochus. In this show, I mentioned the book of Daniel being prophecy. If you want to learn more about that, you can request our free booklet, History and Prophecy of the Middle East. I'll also have an article about the Dead Sea Scrolls linked to the show notes. I know it's been a while since I've released a series, so I just want to say thanks for your patience. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.